0: Hello, hello. Welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. Today I'm talking with Dr. Ashley Alexis, who is answering your direct questions around perimenopause and menopause. Dr. Alexis is the owner of Golden Leaf Health Center in California and a prolific educator on social media, where she focuses on explaining perimenopause and menopause in an approachable manner. In fact, I love her information on TikTok so much. It was an absolute pleasure talking with her today as she went through your questions one by one and answered them in detail. Here's a clip from today's conversation.
1: Very common issue in menopause, weight gain or weight loss resistance. So there's a couple of things happening. One, as our estrogen changes, our estrogen receptors also change. And so there's alpha, estrogen, alpha receptor, and beta. And one of those receptors, when it shifts, actually causes us to hold on to weight. and. There's also a change in our fat to lean muscle ratio. That's why it's super important for women to have you know, weight-bearing exercises and it's part of their routine. And similar to when kids go through puberty, some of them will get a little bit chubbier or a little bit more bulky and then they'll have a growth spurt or start puberty. And that's because our body needs fat tissue to make hormones. So a similar process happens as we get into menopause where our body will hold on to weight to see if we could aromatize or make more estrogen And that is kind of like this evolutionary process that we've made. So weight loss becomes very difficult. And also diet, exercise, stress management, our adrenal function and cortisol regulation also affects how we hold on to weight. When you have high cortisol, when you have high insulin from a lot of sugar intake, you cannot burn fat. And so that's another area to look into. And of course, like we talked before, our thyroid function as well.
0: That's just a small taste of the amazing show that we have for you today. Hey, before we get started, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. And if you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you are placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health and Rupa is the best way to order, manage and track results from over 25 different labs in one single place. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. So if you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Alexis, thank you so much. Welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we are going to talk about, we're, we're doing a Q&A on perimenopause and menopause because I just get so many questions in comments, in the DMs or emails, like, can you just answer this one question for me? And I was like, you know what, we're going to collate the ones that we get more and more and more and ask you as we go through this next 45 minutes because why not just ask you the expert and then we can post it out there. Perfect. So excellent. For those who don't know you and your background, give us a little insight into who you are and what you do and what you stand for.
1: Absolutely. So I am a naturopathic medical doctor here in sunny San Diego in California, where I have my private practice and I primarily work with women in perimenopause and menopause. Um, early in my practice, I found a huge need from women that would just come in or call asking for help because they were dealing with something that they've never felt before and didn't know where to go and doctors weren't providing the support that they needed. So I decided to just dive in and focus on this because there's such a great need and women need to have a resource and a place to go to get information, education and treatment. So that's what I do.
0: I love it because I will be 45 this year wow. and I've been in practice. I've been a doctor 17 years and I remember when I was a wee bit younger and my patients in their forties and fifties would say, you just wait, you just wait. When you hit 45, you won't be able to sleep. And when you hit your forties, wine won't be the same. And when you hit your forties, like you're going to suddenly put on weight. And I was like innocent and in my young thirties, like, no, 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 I won't. <laughs> oh, how I was wrong. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. And that's that point in conversation is why I do what I do, because it's a lot of fear around it and not a lot of support. And so, yeah, I'm here to answer questions and dive in and get into the nitty gritty and provide some tools and support as well.
0: Which brings us to our very first question. So the first question was from Sarah. She said, and this is perfect. Why are we not taught about perimenopause? Like, why did I not know about this or know what to expect?
1: Great question. First of all, when it comes from the practitioner standpoint or medical doctor standpoint, it's not really talked about in medical school. So, doctors aren't trained other than symptoms that come up here's a patch or oral estrogen or just really, really limited resources and treatments for this time in life. And so, doctors aren't trained to know how to do it. So you have a lot of fertility specialists out there. You have a lot of doctors who focus on menstruation and healthy menstruation and all the other things, thyroid and all that. But when it comes to women's hormones and and perimenopause when they start to fluctuate, there's just not a lot of information there. So we rely on specialists really to get that information out there. But yeah, from a medical standpoint, it's just not covered and doctors aren't trained and supported. So that's just where we are now. And I hope to really close that gap and work with other doctors to do the same thing.
0: And I think you're doing a great job. As I was saying before we went live on recording, I mean, I think you're just killing it out there with the education and just looking at watching you on social media and seeing some of your comments. I know the people who watch you feel the same way because they're like, I didn't know this. This wasn't taught to me. Nobody talked about this in my family. So I am thrilled and hopefully part of the big wave to change that for those of us who are getting a little bit older.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And there are even conventional treatments out there. It's just the doctors that were trained 10, 20, 30 years ago aren't mm-hmm. up to date with that. It takes a lot of energy and time to keep up with the research and the new developments and all of that. So that's why we haven't really gotten there yet.
0: Yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there soon. Yeah. So Brenda asks, what age is considered normal to be in perimenopause? I'm 43 and feeling like I'm checking the boxes on those online quote, are you in perimenopause quizzes? But that feels too young. Am I too young
1: for this? No, absolutely not. (laughs) No. (laughs) We start to have hormone changes in our late 30s or early 30s for some women. And so perimenopause on average is 40 or 42 to 50, let's say somewhere in there. And there's plus or minus a few years on both ends. What it really comes down to is fluctuations in menses and symptoms. And so that's what we really focus on to really categorize where a patient will fit in. So it's not premenopause, it's not menopause. So you're somewhere in between. And perimenopause honestly just means a transition time between pre and menopause. So 43 is not too young at all, and it's very common in that time to start feeling those changes and even menopausal symptoms like hot flashes or amenorrhea, where you're not having a menstrual cycle for months at a time.
0: Okay, okay, and it's. More common, I'm sure you get this feedback too, where women go, I used to be regular. Yeah. And now I'm not, what the heck is happening?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's the first thing that often, other than maybe waking or sleep issues or anxiety, that's the first thing that will kind of like wake a you know, woman up like, oh, wait, I didn't have a period. this month. I'm pregnant. And what's happening? Oh, and two months have gone by. So that usually gets the ball rolling with the process of figuring out where to go.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of anxiety, so Maisie says, I had what I would call mild anxiety through my life. And now that I'm in my 40s, my anxiety is high. What is happening? Is this hormonal?
1: Okay. So there's a lot of changes when, assuming she's in perimenopause, there's a lot of changes during that time for many different organ systems. So when I talk about sex hormones, yes. So it could be that the older we get, the more poor egg quality we have, the less progesterone that we make. Progesterone for us women is the hormone that calms us down and reduces anxiety, helps us sleep, keeps our mood stabilized. And so as Progesterone declines, or as an ovulation occurs, where women aren't ovulating, they're not getting that progesterone support. But we cannot forget the adrenal function, thyroid function, and just gut health, which affects our neurotransmitter production. And so, and then just women going through chronic stress throughout their life, now that really depletes us. So, anxiety is a multifactorial approach, but from a hormonal standpoint, the changes in progesterone can really have a huge effect on how we feel in regards to anxiety, especially because progesterone, as you know, Dr. Kerry attaches to GABA receptors and GABA is a neurotransmitter that helps us for men calm. So yeah, it's a very, very common thing to hear women talk about anxiety increasing in mid to late life.
0: Which is not fair or fun, whoever designed that. Yeah. (laughs) Terrible. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Because yeah, no. Well, so that leads me to testing. So Keisha says, my doctor said testing my hormones in perimenopause is pointless, but I feel like crap. Help.
1: Yeah. So I (laughs) highly disagree. (laughs) Testing is important to get a baseline, but also you're not just testing hormones. And I understand from the perspective that impairing menopause, hormones can fluctuate for months to months. You never know what you're getting. However, we really want to look at other organ systems like thyroid and adrenal function and nutritional function and iron levels and cardiovascular. So there's a lot of testing that can be done. That's a little bit more stable and gives us a baseline of where you are. And an idea of just a comprehensive evaluation clinically than just focusing on hormones. But yeah, I test all my patients before I do anything to get a good baseline. And I would never say that it's pointless at all. If you're feeling different, then something needs to happen. And if you're not getting support from your provider, you need to find another one because what you're experiencing is valid. And one thing that I'm adamant about is creating a, a space for my patients to feel heard because the one complaint I get is the doctors are dismissive. They think it's all in my head, they just tell me to eat better, exercise more, sleep better. And that's not helpful. So no, lab testing is not pointless.
0: (laughs) So for those actually who are listening, let's say somebody doesn't know where to start, right? Like the last lab work they had was years ago. It was a cholesterol check. And that's the last thing they've had. If they were to come see you, what do you consider a baseline workup for women as they're transitioning into their forties and fifties?
1: Yes. As a naturopathic doctor and someone who uses a lot of functional testing, my Base lab panels may be a lot more comprehensive than your average doctor. (laughs) So (laughs) what I include in mine typically is people come to me for hormones. So I have a whole hormone panel. That's estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, all your androgens, DHEA, um, S and DHT. And then things like FSH or follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone and prolactin. I might do a cortisol, might not. I usually rely on salivary or urinary testing for cortisol for more accurate results. So that's like the basic hormone I might be missing a few here and there. And then we always check in on iron and vitamin D and B vitamins. I always check on cardiovascular markers, especially LP little A and homocysteine and CRP just for an overall inflammatory um, evaluation and then a full thyroid panel. So most doctors will only test maybe, you know, a TSH and maybe a T4. Maybe. I Yeah, (laughs) my base panel is TSH thyroid-stimulating hormone, free T3, free T4. I also include the antibodies. Hashimoto's is very common in women, so I always do the anti-TPO and the anti-TG antibody. And some other doctors will have different variety in the type of hormones, but that's my baseline, and you'll see different benefits from different markers. And then the basic CVC and the basic CMP, looking at your metabolic panels and your, the health of your red and white blood cells. So that's my comprehensive testing and then we'll talk about maybe the dutch test or doing some other environmental testing heavy metal or a mold toxicity depending on what the patient's presenting me with. but we with blood is typically the standard
0: when you are talking to them about thyroid and cardiovascular do you find that women's risk increases as they hit into perimenopause like they may say to you i didn't used to have a thyroid problem or i've never had cardiovascular risk or high cholesterol do you feel like as they as we age gracefully, that maybe our lab work isn't aging as gracefully as we would like with us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's very common to see. So the big areas when it comes to longevity for women in menopause that I focus on is cardiovascular, cognition, and osteoporosis. And that's because as our bodies decline in estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, it increases those risks for us. So that's why I always test markers for cardiovascular, especially because of those changes. One, How has her diet been and her stress been? How has she been treating her body up until this point in life? And the things and habits that we used to do when we were young really don't work out if they weren't healthy as we get older. So the surprise of having a high LDL, high triglycerides is very common. And then our sex hormones are also very interconnected with our thyroid as well. So we'll see fluctuations there. And for example, weight gain is a huge problem in menopause for women, right? Right. And so we can talk about dietary strategies, we can talk about optimizing hormones, but if you have elevated anti-TPO antibodies, <laughs> you have this whole immune process that's affecting your thyroid that could eventually affect your thyroid hormone production. And so there's a lot of, lot of different areas to focus on with that.
0: I love this because I think a lot of listeners will think, well, I've maybe again, I've had red and white blood cells. In my last visit, I had a red and white blood cell. I had a glucose and I had a cholesterol. Yeah, And that was it. And that was five years ago. And wow, are they missing a lot.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh gosh. Yeah, I, I get that a lot. I am a cash-based practice. And so in, in California, um, most naturopaths are not covered under insurance. So one of the benefits, I have a lot of flexibility in my testing. But one way that people can reduce costs is to bring labs with them. So they're like, oh, don't worry about labs. Oh, my doctor did all the labs. I'll bring them into the visit. And then I look at them and I'm like, These are great, you know, but there's a (laughs) lot more that we need. So let's talk about a strategy, how we can get these done so we can have a full, complete picture.
0: I love it. Okay. Well, speaking of the weight, Anna says, I'm 50 years old and I'm 15 pounds heavier through menopause. Why? And make it stop. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yes. Common. Very common.
1: Yes. So a very common issue in menopause, weight gain or weight loss resistance. So there's a couple of things happening. One, as our estrogen changes, our estrogen receptors also change. And so there's alpha, estrogen, alpha receptor, and beta. And one of those receptors, when it shifts, actually causes us to hold on to weight. And there's also a change in our fat to lean muscle ratio. That's why it's super important for women to have you know, weight-bearing exercises. And it's part of that routine. And similar to when kids go through puberty... Some of them will get a little bit chubbier or a little bit more bulky, and then they'll have a growth spurt or start puberty. And that's because our body needs fat tissue to make hormones. So a similar process happens as we get into menopause, where our body will hold on to weight to see if we could aromatize or make more estrogen. And that is kind of like this evolutionary process that we've made. So weight loss becomes very difficult. And also... Diet, exercise, stress management, our adrenal function and cortisol regulation also affects how we hold on to weight. When you have high cortisol, when you have high insulin from a lot of sugar intake, you cannot burn fat. And so that's another area to look into. And of course, like we talked before, our thyroid function as well. So many areas to look in when it comes to weight. But as I said before, if you haven't had good, healthy, consistent pattern or behaviors early in life, and they carry those same behaviors into menopause... It's not going to work for you very well for many different reasons. And so that's why I always tell my patients like menopause is a really good time to pause and reset and really evaluate what you need. Women typically give a lot to other people and not a lot to themselves. And so if your cup is not full, your ability to help others is going to be diminished. So really spend that time to give your body what it needs and listen to your body because it's trying to keep you living healthy and long. So yeah.
0: I love that because I feel how many times have you had a patient say to you, I didn't change anything. Dr. Alexis, I didn't change anything. I didn't change my diet. I didn't change my exercise, my habits. Yes. I used to be able to get away with this at 25 and now I'm 45 and it's not working. And I'm like, yes. just like you said, right? You're like, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> exactly. <Almost> everyone.
0: <laughs> You're not the same person. You're going through perimenopause yes. <laughs> time to dial it in.
1: It happens all the time. Our Everything from our physical and nutritional needs to our mental and spiritual needs change as we go through that time. So yeah, it's a whole reset is necessary.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. That is the truth. I want to touch on insulin. Do you find as women get older, we get more insulin
1: resistant? A hundred percent. Yes. So you get back to diet and all of that. Like if, okay, so huge thing is wine, <laughs> alcohol, <laughs> you know, women love their alcohol <laughs> yes. at night, a couple of cocktails every day, or almost binge drinking on the weekends. And so we don't realize how much sugar we're actually drinking when we do have alcohol, but then the other things that we eat, desserts and not having enough fiber and protein support. So the way that our body will receive and break down sugar will expose or predispose us to insulin resistance. So for everyone that doesn't know what that means, so basically when you eat food with sugar in it, it gets dumped into our blood and we can't have sugar, just rampant it in the blood by itself. So our pancreas will secrete insulin and insulin signals the cells in our body to absorb and take the glucose the sugar out of our blood. And so if we repeat this process over and over again throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the months, throughout the years, our body will stop listening to insulin or stop being as sensitive to insulin. And so then we get into this resistant state where insulin has to be produced in more quantity and get louder to tell the body to absorb the glucose. When we have high insulin, we cannot get into that fat burning mode. So I find that very commonly. So insulin is another marker that I always test in my panels as well.
0: I love it. And going to, speaking of alcohol, I want to ask Mina's question. Mina says, I think I need to give up alcohol because my nightly <laughs> glass of wine is now making me feel like crap in the morning. Plus I can't sleep. I'm sweating through my pajamas and it didn't used to do that. Why does my body now hate alcohol? Is this normal in perimenopause? I love my wine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Mina.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's so many ways to answer that question. One is water we tend to become more dehydrated as we get older. And so when alcohol is a natural diuretic, we also a lot of times start our day with coffee, which is also a diuretic. So you're getting this double whammy. And in my lifestyle section, my medical intakes, my patient, I always ask about hydration. And the most common thing I hear is like, oh, I need to drink more water. That's like very common for people. So as we get more dehydrated, the more effect alcohol is going to have on us. And then also with metabolically, there's an antioxidant called glutathione. There's other enzymes in our liver that help to break down toxins from the environment and especially alcohol. Those enzymes, alcohol dehydrogenase and acetaldehyde dehydrogenase become less effective as we get older, unless we're doing things like, for instance, milk thistle or having glutathione in our supplement regimen to help support that breakdown. Acetylaldehyde is the byproduct of alcohol. And acetylaldehyde is like 30 times more toxic than alcohol by itself. So if we're not efficiently breaking that down or having enough water in our system, we're not supporting our enzymes, and we're going to feel the effects of alcohol more. So there's other genetic SNP issues and things that help us, which you probably know a little bit more about that help us with alcohol. But as we get older, we become more sensitive. So
0: And I would have patients who would say to me, much like, like the sleep thing or the weight thing alcohol is a big one. I would have women say to me, enjoy your wine now. Cause once you hit your forties, it's going to be yeah. <laughs> tougher. Like you're going to find, and even just the occasional drinker, it doesn't have to be somebody who's wine. Like Mina's saying, I have it every night, Yeah. even just the occasional at a wedding or a celebration or something you're trying to, you would like to enjoy a glass of whatever. Yeah. And I had a lot of patients say to me, it, it completely messes everything up from again, sleep to hot flashes to yeah. mental clarity to energy, whatever it is. And
1: so it's common. Yeah, I really want to push healthy drinking, not in, in the amount, which is important, but in preparation for. Yeah. Like, I don't think we think about that. If we're going to have a couple of cocktails on a Saturday night, what are we doing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to kind of like prepare for that because of the toll that alcohol takes on it, on us and our body? And so I'm always about like, think about the bigger picture outside of just that night of drinking. What are you doing to prepare your body for that? Some people are no alcohol, completely remove it. And I'm just more, we live in real life. We have social things and gatherings. and We want to enjoy, we want to pick our poison and enjoy things from time to time, but, but work for that. Prepare your body for that. I think that's super important. That's super
0: important. I think that's really good suggestions for everyone to listen to and big aha moment yeah, for folks. Well, let's go back to irregular cycles. Abby says, I have always had regular cycles and now I've gone nine months without a period. I'm 53 am I close? Is this it? Am I menopausal? I also have all the symptoms. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So having all the symptoms makes sense. Your body is not producing estrogen in the quantities that it was before. You're also not ovulating. You're not making progesterone. So yes, that's going to cause the hot flashes, the insomnia, the mood swings and things like that. Nine months in, you're still in perimenopause. You can go 11, 11 and a half months, And then boom, have a period. And then the clock starts all over. So I would say you're most likely almost there, but keep in mind that your period could come. And so then you would have to wait another 12 months without a cycle to be in full menopause. So yeah, you're almost there. I would probably still anticipate that menopause is coming sooner rather than later, but we never know. (laughs)
0: And how often, how many Murphy's Law patients have you had who've called you and said, I went 11 months and 14 days,
1: (laughs) my period started. (laughs) Like, ah. Just a handful, just a handful. Most of the time for the majority of women, if they've gone that long, I'm already starting them on hormone therapy and we're already doing the in preparation for treating them like a menopausal patient. Absolutely. Yeah, so just a handful that's actually happened to you, but it can happen.
0: (laughs) Well, actually, speaking of hormone replacement therapy, Tony says hormone replacement therapy freaks me out, but my hot flashes are killing me. I can't sleep. My hair is thinning. I'm tired. I'm cranky and I can't orgasm. Help me. Yes. So let's talk about HRT.
1: Yes. So this is where I get mostly passionate about because I want my patients to be educated on hormone therapy and where this fear comes from. So when hormone therapy started being prescribed in the 1960s, it it made this huge impact on the world. Because women who had been suffering were now getting treatment that actually was effective. A few years later, they found, and then they started giving estrogen. So that was the initial treatment. A few years later, Kaiser Hospital did a study where they realized some patients were getting endometrial cancer. So that's when they they found that if you bring in a progestin, which is progesterone, a synthetic form of progesterone, it protects endometrial lining. Boom. Okay. and No more endometrial cancer. Women are feeling great. Then the 2002 Women's Health Initiative study came out. Dang it. <laughs> this was a huge study that had was backed by millions of dollars. So they had to make movement. They had to shake things up. And so it was supposed to be a long-term study that was cut short because they claimed that estrogen increased risk for cancer, that increased risk for cardiovascular disease as well. They were using synthetic forms of estrogen and synthetic forms of progesterone, but there were a lot of holes in the study. They actually initiated treatment for patients that were well into their 60s, over 10 years post-menopause or post their last menstrual cycle. They claimed that the women in the study were representing the healthy women in the country in the world, and they weren't. A lot of them were obese, had diabetes, so they didn't account for smoking. So there's so many factors in that study. And... The reality is is that hormone therapy, when working with an experienced doctor who's monitoring you safely, who's able to speak with you about any risks that may come up for you individually, hormones can be life-changing, safe, and effective. And so this whole fear about breast cancer and this whole fear about strokes and cardiovascular issues really comes from a poorly done study that was so detrimental for women Especially because, like I mentioned before, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and neurocognitive changes like dementia can come from not having estrogen and not having progesterone. And so all these women for many years, many decades, were missed the opportunity because they were immediately taking off hormones, were never given the option to have in the first place. And since that study, there have been numerous studies showing that even if breast cancer is in your immediate family, it does not put you at increased risk for breast cancer. And nothing is black and white. It's like, yes, it's not going to happen. This is going to happen. But that's why you need to be monitored and really talk with your doctor about your personal individual risk, if there are any. So that's my spiel on hormone therapy. And there's a lot of studies and research and resources out there to really get a good idea of if it's so that you can feel more comfortable moving forward. And then the second part of this question was the different symptoms she was experiencing, right? So I think an issue with orgasm or Vaginal dryness, so, so vaginal sensitivity, vaginal dryness, low so libido are all very common symptoms of menopause. And so, in general, hormone therapy can be really helpful for increasing libido and vaginal sensitivity, especially if the hormones are given at vaginal, look at local tissue in the in the vagina. So, for example, if what if my patient is on a full hormone therapy, I always do a short term treatment of vaginal estriol or vaginal DHEA which will actually bring lubrication and promote your own circulation in the vagina and also increase sensitivity. So that's one example of how I do that. Hot flashes, estrogen can be really helpful for that. I've also seen really good adrenal support reduce hot flashes as well. That's super important. And so yeah, so overall hormone therapy can be really helpful for many, many reasons and many symptoms.
0: This study that you're referencing, the Women's Health Initiative, it's just so unfortunate because. A really one of my mentors who's an interventional cardiologist and in prescribes hormone replacement therapy. She said, Do you know what the number one killer of women is? She said, It's not breast cancer, it's cardiovascular disease, right? right? And as we know in the industry, but it's making the news, like, things like dementia and Alzheimer's are significantly on the rise, and bone loss is significantly, you know, just all these things that estrogen can play a role in. And we lose as we go into menopause, and this study really in a lot of our minds, like just really negatively stunted a lot of women and put us at increased risk. And so I'm so glad that you mentioned since that time, a number of studies have come out since then to go, oops, or we're not finding the same thing that they're finding. Now the progestin, the synthetic progesterone that you referenced, yes, for sure, we- don't recommend against that or don't recommend for that, but yeah, exactly. Right. The progesterone Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. estrogen, estradiol, estriol, testosterone. Yeah. Uh, different. And so I love your stance on this because I wish the pharmacies and I wish a lot of medical schools would educate on this, get up to date.
1: Yeah. And there's so many nuances. So I have women that come to me on oral estrogen, for example, our body processes oral estrogen differently than a transdermal or topical. And I only prescribe and work with compounded bioidentical hormones for many other reasons and benefits. But conventionally and through insurance, you can still get an estradiol patch or a transdermal gel that is most, most likely covered from your insurance that you don't have to pay out of pocket for. So there are better options. It just takes a lot of education, um, especially on the practitioner side. But I'm glad that we're doing this podcast and having this conversation. So that consumers of these hormones can really know what questions to ask and what kind of to expect when they're looking into hormone therapy.
0: And I've heard more functional oncologists even say, cancer is complicated. Breast cancer is complicated and we can't blame one thing. It's estrogen by itself is not the single reason for breast cancer. It's a combination of our environment and genetics and lifestyle and Detoxification pathways and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And we we will see online. You know, oh, my friend started estrogen and two months later got breast cancer. I'm like, well, I'm, as we know, is us the cancer takes a while, right? It's not yeah. an overnight thing. It's not like a cold where you have right. for a couple of days, it starts to build and then poof, you have a cold. Cancer doesn't work that way. And so, yeah. and not breast cancer anyhow. And so we know it's very multifaceted. So yeah, I'm glad this education is getting out there.
1: Absolutely. And for a lot of my patients, I do the Dutch Complete. Yeah. The Dutch test from Precision Analytical, they offer the Dutch Complete where I actually get to see how estrogen is broken down in my patients' bodies. And so if I'm giving her estrogen or just testing her estrogen, what pathways is she using? Is she using the healthy pathways that allows her to clear estrogen out effectively and safely? Or is it causing DNA damage and increasing metabolites that could potentially increase risk for cancer down the line? So that's a really helpful tool to ensure and provide comfort to my patients, especially if they're having some doubts about it.
0: Absolutely. When they're on it. I want to go back to the sex drive because I forgot about Zika's. I skipped over Zika's question completely. My sex drive was always kind of okay. And now it's gone, like gone. I'm 47 years old, two kids, work from home and married to a good guy. But blah, am I doomed?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love her question. So I love how she put it about how she loves her husband, has a great partner. And I feel like we equate our desire for sex to maybe not liking our partners or something. It has nothing to do with that. It's a physiological thing and a physiological change. So a lot of women know about testosterone and that can decline as we get older. But how wouldn't in our normal menstrual cycles how we normally make it is after that first half of our cycle, after we get that estrogen or peak or as that estrogen builds, it'll stimulate testosterone receptors and testosterone to develop. That's why we have an increased desire for before ovulation or after ovulation. And so that as estrogen declines, we don't get that boost. Although I found many women that have really good testosterone levels in their 40s and 50s, but for some, yeah, <laughs> but for some, not so much. And so we talk about the androgens for a libido support, which can help for a lot of women and maybe not for some. I find that it's mixed sometimes, but testosterone, DHEA, and yeah, testosterone, DHEA are the two main ones. And there are some herbs that actually support androgens for female Like Shatabari and Tribulus, right? And also zinc for proper conversion. So there's some things there for libido. Maka is a huge one too that can be really helpful for adrenal support in general, but also VHEA. And I also talk about my patients, just like habits that you were doing before may not be working now, even sexually. So I always talk about how important foreplay is for women to help warm us up, get us in the mood because. We're all here in our head most of the time and we need to be back into our bodies. So doing massage, doing activities that help us go to our bodies and remain present, maybe a conversation or maybe just intimacy that may not involve sex right away is the best way to help us get back into that desire. So along with sex hormone support, along with making sure you have stress management and doing things that restore energy for you, also look at how you can engage differently with your partner.
0: Have you read that book, Come As You Are, by Emily Nagoski? No, I heard
1: about it, though.
0: Yeah, it's a great, great book that was recommended to me. And she talks about the brake and accelerator system in our libido mm-hmm. and how, like, what are things that pump your brakes, which could, just like you said, could be hormone, could be stress. And she talks a lot about yeah. how we're same exactly what you said. We're up in our head. We're thinking about the appointments and kids and laundry and, 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 and then it's yeah. like, all right, time for sexy time. And so yeah. there's no way we're pressing on the accelerator, but what can press on the accelerator. And so it's this really great read around yes, hormones play a role, but exactly what you said, that as we get older and our hormones decline, but our stress is also higher, that we have to, we're not in our 20s anymore. Right, (laughs) We might have to switch a few things.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And I always ask my patients, like, how do you feel about your body? Because your body changes as well. And so a lot of times that takes confidence out of my patients and how they feel about themselves and how they can express themselves sexually. So it's like a reintroduction of who you are doing the things that make you feel confident and sexy. And then those other things that we just mentioned to then be interested in engagement. So,
0: Oh, I love that. Gosh, that's yeah. a great question. How do you feel about your body? So everyone listening right now, that's a good check-in for them. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, last question is from Rochelle. She asks in all capital letters, how long does this last? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think she means Uh, perimenopause, but maybe the whole thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So like I said earlier, we start having hormone changes in our mid to late 30s, some sooner, some later. In our 40s, perimenopause, and then early 50s on average for menopause. So how you have treated your body and yourself throughout your life will have a huge impact on how you go through this transition and into menopause. So I'll say that. And then also, how soon are you bringing in treatment? How soon are you getting help? So you'll be in menopause potentially 30, 40 years of your life. (laughs) How you experience that could be different based on the support and resources and treatment that you do get at that time. So I wouldn't hold off talking to your doctor about what you're going through. I read a report that only 7% of women actually tell their doctor they have vaginal dryness because of shame or because of embarrassment. And so, no, this is your life. And no matter what age you are or where you are in in your fertility, you should be able to enjoy it. And so talk to your doctor. And if they aren't providing the resources and so look for a hormone specialist or menopause specialist, someone that can actually speak your language and know what you're talking about. So how long does this last? Forever? <laughs> <laughs> once, you, <laughs> once you're in menopause, you're in menopause. And like so it's just how you experience it and what support you get can make that experience so much better.
0: I love that you said that you could be in it for 30 or 40 years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it can be seriously a third of your life. Exactly. Right. It can be a third of your life and we don't get that education as women. So, uh, so I'm loving having conversations Yeah. like these with you, because that can be really <laughs> eye opening to a lot of women. For sure. To think about it that way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a huge part of your life and People talk about gender bias in medicine. Like, if men were dealing with this, this would be solved just like that, you know? And I agree. It's, unfortunately, that's where we are. Like I said, I am going to close that gap and talk about this as much as I can. But there are doctors that know what to do and can support you. So don't listen to maybe you got told there's, I've heard so many different things. There's no treatment for menopause. It's on your head. You just got to deal with it. Oh, you're just old now. Like, so many things that these women get told. And it's just so unfortunate. And upsetting. So there are doctors out there, reach out to me, look for a hormone and menopause specialist in your area. We're here to help you.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, okay. So given that this is the root cause medicine podcast, and we have been talking about perimenopause and menopause, what are the top like two or three things you really want to leave listeners with so that they can make it practical and tactical for them?
1: Focus on nutrition, really up your nutrition game. And don't overdo it with supplements, but supplements are there as a support. Even a good multivitamin, fish, oil, and probiotic could be very, very good. If you are able to work with a nutritionist for a short amount of time just to learn the basics of what you should be eating, it would be such a good investment for the rest of your life. So really focus on nutrition, really focus on water and things that hydrate you, not dehydrate you. If you're having coffee, make sure you're increasing your water even more that day. If you're having alcohol, same thing. So really Change your mind about or your perspective about those type of activities and how you can prepare your body more for that. The second thing, don't be scared of hormone therapy. I talked a little about the history in this conversation today, but dive in more and really listen to qualified health practitioners on hormone therapy because it could be life changing as you go through that process and transition and then eventually hit menopause. There's a huge resource and a huge treatment that's available and safe and effective. And then the last one, I'll kind of circle back to what we talked about earlier menopause, perimenopause, that whole time, it's for you. It really is an opportunity for you to make the necessary changes for the rest of your life. And your body is kind of like the first checkpoint that's telling you, hey, things are changing. We got to do something. Listen to that. Listen to those signals and really assess every aspect of your life and take this as a new opportunity to go after the things that maybe you set aside for kids or set aside for other people. How can you reinvent yourself? What is your biggest wish and desire for your life. Really use this time to figure that out for you. And I think it'll benefit you for in more ways than one.
0: Amen to that. Yes. <laughs> Put that in a book.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
0: oh my goodness. Where can people find you? Dr. Alexis, DM your website, your social media, all the things.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. So my website is goldenleafhc.com. And on there... You can sign up for my newsletter. So you can get announcements. I also give a lot of information on hormones and all things menopause and perimenopause. I'm very active on social media. On TikTok, my handle is menopause doctor. (laughs) And on Instagram, it's at NB Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y.
0: Love it. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being on today. This is really been eye-opening. I'm sure everyone who asks questions will be thrilled to hear your honest answers. Learn that they're not alone. Learn there are real solutions out there. And everyone definitely go follow her on TikTok. I follow her on TikTok and she's amazing. And check her out, especially if you're in California. So thanks for being on today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. It was so fun to talk about this. So I hope everyone really was able to get a lot of good tidbits and information today.
0: my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.